Thank you so much. Praise the Lord, everyone. You may be seated. It's a joy, a privilege, and an honor to be here. I love what God is doing here on this campus. Um, I grew up on a Bible college campus, almost literally. My father gave his life to train the next generation of apostolic leaders at Apostolic Bible Institute. And I love everything that I see, hear, and feel uh, on this campus. And I also want to commend Dr. Calthorpe, Sister Russell, and those decision makers here for having a conference, uh, a leadership conference, and offering this. This is something we've needed in our organization for a long time, a conference dedicated to leadership, because the biggest issue I'll say it this way, of church growth is leadership. It's not location, it's not resources, it's leadership because everything rises and falls with it. And so I'm so suitably proud to see all of you. We need to work on this section over here a little bit, but we're glad that uh, all of you are here. It's an honor to uh, rub shoulders with all of you and particularly the team of speakers that have been invited. We give honor to all of those that Brother Calthorpe has mentioned tonight. And uh, uh, it's a joy, especially for me, to partner with Brother Gurley tonight, my longtime friend. And so, uh, I honestly, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to preach or teach. Um, and uh, I'm really having a problem with this pulpit so far away from the whites of your eyes. So I probably won't last behind it very long. But um, So I couldn't decide, preach or teach, so I'm going to treach, I think. And Brother Tenney said the difference between teaching and preaching is teaching is telling and preaching is yelling. So I don't know what's going to happen. But I want to read for a text, a launch had John 14:12 I'm reading the New King James I tell you the truth anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done I don't think I'm reading the New King James I think I'm reading the NLT See, here's what I do. I read all the versions until I find the one that says what I want it to say. And then that's the one I pick. So just deal with it. Uh, nobody ever accused me of being a theologian, okay? Anyway, I think I'm reading the NLT. My notes say in New King James, but it's not. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Um, so I want to encapsulate my remarks tonight with the idea I would call making room for the next generation of apostolic leaders. This is the biggest issue in leadership, no matter your age, no matter your title, your position, you don't have to have gray hair like me. 
to start thinking about who's coming after you. Because it doesn't matter what your position is tonight, what's your title, what's your sphere of influence. Every pastor is an interim pastor. Have a nice day. <laughs> it, it's a gift I have to comfort people. Uh, every youth pastor is an interim youth pastor. Every Sunday school teacher is an interim Sunday school teacher. And there's one death per person, unless you're Lee Stone King. <laughs> then you get to die a couple times. He told our church, he said, it wasn't that bad. So as I was reading Ecclesiastes 3, I, I'm not going to have you turn there. This is an often quoted, poetic, insightful observation of the seasons of life. For example, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to plant. A time to pluck up that which is planted. I wish the wise men would have carried over one more verse. There's a time to hold on, and there's a time to let go. When Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. And greater works than these they will do. And then I'm out of here. Did I injure the text? I don't think so. He said, I'll be leaving. So I want to translate this in Gleason translation. Jesus said, I'm going to lead for now. I'm not going to lead forever. I'm going to lead until you learn how to do what I'm doing. I'm going to do great things, then you're going to do great things, and you're going to do even greater things. You are going to break my records. Everybody okay? Yeah. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to protect my turf. I'm not going to guard my territory. I'm not going to hold all my secrets so that I can be a superstar, one and done Messiah. But I'm preparing a path. I'm setting up the next generation for success. And I am old enough now. Uh, my kids don't like me to say my filter's getting thinner, but they're not here tonight. So I'm, I have a lot less to lose than I used to, I suppose, and the, the filter is getting thinner. But I feel like part of my role as a licensed minister for 44 years 
and now serving our organization in the capacity I am, that I want to do what I can to make room for the next generation. And I want to say that historically this has been a problem. And even in some context, in a contemporary context, it is still a problem. It is a challenge. So don't zone out on me if you're thinking, you know, this is for Gleason's, you know, old geezer generation. Let me tell you something. When I was 35 years old, I wanted to start a conference called Passing the Mantle that would make room for the next generation. At age 35, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I wanted Lee Stone King to come and be the anchor speaker because I wanted this conference to have an impact. I wanted to impact the next generation. I say me. I wanted the Lord. I wanted to create an atmosphere where the next generation could be impacted. And uh, so Brother Stone King was preaching Missouri camp meeting in Bridgeton. And my wife and I had been in Kansas City about six years. And uh, he went to Bible school when I was seven years old. And I remembered him. I was sure he didn't remember me, but I remembered him. Who could forget somebody like Lee Stone King? In fact, I have very specific imageries in my mind of when he was there. And uh, so I waited till everybody was done talking to him. He's done taking photo ops and signing autographs, and everybody left. I said, Brother Stone King, you probably don't remember me. I'm Stan Gleason. Boy, I remember you. I said, how could you remember me? I was seven years old. Your dad was the greatest Christian I've ever known. So I told him what I wanted. He said, all right, I'll put you on my list. I'm like, what? And he walked off. Oh, okay, I'm on the list, whatever that means. But I was determined. I'm going to have him help me start a conference to make room for the next generation. And uh, every time I'd see him somewhere, I'd go right up to him. Brother Stone King, am I on your list? Yes. And that was it. Four and a half years. Finally, I went to him. I said, Brother Stone King, am I still on your list? He said, yes, boy, and you're moving up. <laughs> he called me like two months later and gave me a date the last weekend of October. And for the last, this was our 24th this last month. So we're now entering into our 25th year. So... I, again, I'm not making a hero out of myself, but I'm come to ask you a question. Who are you making room for? How old do you have to be to work yourself out of a job? This is a leadership conference, right? One of the jobs of a leader is to define reality. And the reality is, there's one death per person. And Jesus had not 42 years to groom the next generation. 
He had 42 months. And I want to ask you tonight, who's following you? Who are you getting ready to take your place? Who are you speaking into? Who are you empowering that's in the generation behind you? It is apostolic to have a succession plan. It is not apostolic to die in the saddle with your boots on. I know that's romanticized. I know it is celebrated. I, a few years ago, I heard about a pastor. I, I knew him, 80-plus, still pastoring his church. In its heyday, it ran over 400, but he grew it down to 40. And at his funeral, he was celebrated by one of his contemporaries for dying with his boots on. I'm sorry. That did not please the Lord. Shall we pray? Come on, smile at me so I know you're all right out there. It's apostolic to be intentional about your succession plan. It's apostolic to have a say in who your successor is. Jesus plan was not to die and let the multitude from Fish and Chips Sunday decide who's going to succeed him. What good were they? They walked away. So Jesus' entire ministry was spent with an exit strategy. What I'm doing, I'm going to train you to do it, and you're going to do it, and it's even going to be better than I ever did it. And then I'm checking out. I'm out of here. What if you knew you had 3.5 years from today? Are you going to be a one-and-done apostolic Pentecostal? Or are you going to leave your fingerprints all over somebody? You know, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Who's imitating you? I decided there's a lot worse people in the world to imitate than me. Somebody just told me this week, said, your son Caleb is just like you. I said, poor kid. I said, actually, there's a lot worse people to be like than I am. And you understand the attitude that I'm communicating to you when I say that. Jesus understood that there would be no success without a successor. Someone said, it's lonely at the top, so you better know why you're there. Let me say it this way. It's lonely at the top. If it's lonely at the top, you're not doing something right. If you're alone at the top, that means no one is following you. Maxwell said, he who thinks he's leading and has no one following is only taking a walk. What kind of a leader would leave no one behind and take the journey alone? Jim Whitaker was the first American to climb Mount Everest. He was asked the question, 
What gives you the most fulfillment as a mountain climber? His answer was a surprise. He said, I have helped more people get to the top of Mount Everest than any other person. Taking people to the top who could never get there without my help is my greatest accomplishment. Jim Whitaker was not a travel agent who just tells you where to go, but he was more like a tour guide. A travel agent says, go, but a tour guide says, let's go. Turn to somebody and say, let's go. There's a big difference between a boss and a leader. A boss says, go, but a real leader says, let's go. Who have you invited on your bus? Who have you invited to take the journey with you? Who are you adding value to? Let me just speak for myself as a senior pastor. I don't feel like people work for me. They work with me. Matthew 28, 19. I think this is the new King James for sure. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus as a leader, as the greatest leader the world has ever seen. In fact, that's why I named my book The Unflawed Leader. My wife asked me what the title of my book was going to be. I said, The Unflawed Leader. She said, oh, you're writing an autobiography? No, she didn't ask me that. She knows way better than that. There's only one unflawed leader the world has ever seen. And we don't typically think of Jesus as a leader. We don't really read the text with the lens of leadership. We read the text through the lens of messiahship and redeemer and healer and miracle worker and, and way maker. But when you read and synthesize the four gospels, and you find Jesus as a leader in real-time moments. He brought no habits, hurts, or hang-ups to his leadership model. He brought no unmet emotional issues, no insecurities to his leadership team. He was the only perfect leader the world has ever seen. And I want you to know, if you were a betting man, John Ortman said, if you were a betting man and you were putting your money either on the Roman government or a nondescript rabbi from Nazareth to still have an enterprise 2,000 years later, who would you have bet on in the first century? So don't minimize the strategy of Jesus' leadership model. And we would do well to repeat and rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat Jesus' strategy. So what shape 
Would the church be in today if Jesus had trained no leaders, if he had made no disciples? What if he was just a great Sunday morning communicator who went from his car to his office to the platform to the pulpit to the platform to the office to the car to the parsonage? What sort of a church would we have today? How did that work out for him on Fish and Chips Sunday? Not too good. The whole congregation got up and walked off. Why? Because they were consumers. And Jesus preached commitment, and at the end of the day, there was 12 left in the congregation. But he was okay with that because he couldn't reach the world with a bunch of, with 20,000 consumers, but he could with 12 disciples. And so these are the ones that Jesus said, he chose them to be with them. That's disciple-making language. That's leadership language. Chose them not to preach to them, not to pontificate to them, not to wow them and woo them and defend his turf and his territory, but to bring them alongside. Have you ever studied the spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12? Seven Spiritual gifts, not the gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, the motivational gifts. Um, let me see if I can get them. Teacher, exhorter, exhorter's me, I'm the exhorter. Exhorters are ready to go bear hunting with a stick right now. They don't worry about the details. They're like, what's holding up the delay? Let's go, people. They're ready to charge hell with a squirt gun right now. In fact, exhorters have to be careful because they're, al they're always ready with a sermon. They're always ready with a message, but they need a verse to make it legal. That doesn't go over at Urshan because, you know, my, both of my sons are theologians. They would hate me to hear me say that, but I'm not a theologian, so get over it. I'm an exhorter. I'm like, I got a message. Oh, I got a verse. I'm ready to go. Come on, people, lighten up a little bit in here. So, so teacher, exhorter, administrator, intercessor, prophet, server, giver. Those are the seven. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus, I told you, you weren't safe. If, oh yeah, oh, wait. I need to stay up here, or you, you won't see me. Um, <clears throat> if Jesus, if you had to peg Jesus in one of those motivational gifts, if you resonated the four Gospels, where would you, what would you say was his most prolific gift that he operated in? Anybody? He was all of them. He could do all of them, but wouldn't it have to be teacher, rabbi? When you read the text, he's most often functioning as rabbi. And the, the rabbinical scholars said that disciples were in tow of their teacher collecting the dust from his feet. And it was a common sight to see rabbis with disciples in that first century traversing up and down the hills of Judea 
and beyond. And here's the thing about teachers. I know teachers very, very well. And I want to say that we're doing what we can to promote the fivefold ministry apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And we've sort of focused on apostle and prophet because they're the most controversial and they're the elephant in the room. And, and we're trying to normalize and demystify the fivefold ministry. But I want to say right now that we are also trying to elevate, lift, and celebrate the teacher. Because the teacher, for too long, has been de-emphasized and taken for granted in the apostolic church. In fact, you go to any camp meeting you want to in the UPC across North America from sea to shining sea, and everybody wants John the Baptist to come and preach at their camp. But who wants Jesus? Who wants the teacher? Just because somebody's not screaming, yelling, swabbing their tonsils with the microphone doesn't mean they're not anointed. In fact, I'm very anointed right now, and I ain't even started screaming yet. Probably won't. I'll leave that out to Brother Gurley tonight. So Jesus is a teacher, and I was raised in the home of a teacher. My father was a called fivefold ministry teacher. And here's what I know about teachers, four things. One, they love to study. That's not me. I don't love to study. I love to play golf. I love to be with the crowd. I love to hang out. I love, I get my energy from people. You, you put me in a library in a corner with a cup of coffee and a book, I'm like in 30 seconds, I'm chomping at the bit. I think I have attention deficit disorder. But anyway, and I, I sincerely mean that. I'm not making fun of it. I know it's a real diagnosis, but I think maybe I do. I don't know. So I have to dig and claw and scrape and scratch and like, got an idea from the Bible. God spoke to me. Quick, get me to the pulpit right now before I lose it. But teachers, they love to study. And then they love to share what they've learned, their discovery. They love that. That's the second thing. The third thing is, they love to see the light come on in the eyes of their student. That's what gives them the return. That gives them the goosebumps. Okay? They don't, they don't care if anybody's running the aisles. They don't care if anybody's swinging from the chandeliers. They could care less. They love to see that aha moment. And we've all had them at the feet of teachers. But don't miss the fourth thing. Teachers love to see their student exceed them. A real teacher does. A pseudo-teacher, a fake teacher, may not want their student to, their light to get brighter than theirs. That's a problem among us. When lights start shining bright, insecure leaders get insecure. <laughs> Huh? That's why I celebrate Barnabas. Because chances are we would have really never heard much more about Saul of Tarsus unless Barnabas would have went after him. 
He goes to Jerusalem. They reject him. He doesn't know what to do with them. They don't know what to do with him. They don't know if they can believe him. He goes back to Tarsus. Who goes after him? Barnabas. And it's, you know, first half of the book of Acts, or at least from chapter 9, a few chapters, it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then it shifts. In chapter 13, it goes to Paul and Barnabas. I believe Barnabas was a teacher because he's called a son of consolation. You know, he's not a son of thunder. You know, he's, he's a son of consolation, but he's also an apostle. But he's a teacher apostle, apostle teacher. And he goes and gets Saul. Why? Because he saw something in him others did not identify or they were intimidated by it. And by the way, What would you do with a Saul of Tarsus if God sent him to your church? What would you do to a Saul of Tarsus who can quote modern-day poets and sat at the feet of Gamaliel? Huh? I'm talking about making room. What if somebody comes along and their star is brighter than your star? Are you going to squash them and jump on them and criticize them? Or are you going to say, come on, get on the team? And Barnabas when it shifts, and Luke now is writing Paul and Barnabas. Did Barnabas have a meltdown and bust up into Luke's office and say, you know, there we were going, just real good there. Luke, you're doing a good job, Barnabas and Saul. I sort of like the sound of that, big guy. And imagine my surprise as I'm having my coffee and reading the morning text from the book of Acts, and now it's Paul and Barnabas. What's going on? No, no, no. You know what Barnabas is doing? Woo! I saw it coming. None of you people saw it. I knew he had gifts that none of you saw. He's celebrating. Where did he get that? Jesus. The things that I'm doing, you're going to do? You're going to break my records? You're going to exceed me? Listen, if we can get to this place in the apostolic church where we are not territorial, where we are not protecting turf, where we are not hanging on to jobs, but we're working ourselves out of jobs. My goal is to make my ceiling the floor of the next generation. Teachers get this. Teachers understand this. When I was 39, my dad was dying He was Mr. Music. He could get music out of anybody. He was always listening for that next bass singer, freshman student that would come to ABI. We had welcome night. Um, one Sunday night in our church, we welcome all the ABI students, and they parade across the, the stage, and they'd say their name and where they're from and, and uh, you know, who they are. And so... I watched my dad. There was a guy, when I was about 14, there was a guy who came up and said, My name's Bob Gibson. I'm from Dover, Delaware. I'm a freshman. And my dad's like, I got to take that guy into the choir room and sit down at the piano and see if he's got an ear. And so dad tells a story. He takes him. In the choir room, he says, 
hey, Bob, just slip on in here. Come over here by the piano. And Dad, you know, he hits the key. Bob, sing this note. Dun. And Bob's like, ah. <laughs> but he was teachable. And his ear was tweakable and trainable. And he turned him into, is Gary Reed here? The best bass singer that ABI has ever put out. I travel. I toured with my brother, 68 ABI Quartet, a year ago last summer, and Gary Reed, two former missionaries, Gary Reed and Jerry Burns, and we had a blast. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking, taking 75-year-olds out on the road, but anyway, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> so how did I get there? So my dad... <laughs> I'm having a blast. I don't know what you guys are doing. When I was 39... He was dying, cancer. And uh, I had a, he lived in Oregon, I lived in Kansas City, flew out there as much as I could. And he took me aside one day and he said, Son, you've exceeded me. And when your dad's your hero, and he's sung on every general conference platform and every UPCI camp meeting, and preached and taught and trained. I can't go anywhere. I do not go anywhere that someone does not come up to me and say, your dad was my teacher. He changed my life. He still blesses me today. You don't want to hear your dad say that. You've exceeded me. And it wasn't true then, and it's still not true today. But here's what he was doing. He was acting like his gift the gift of the teacher. He's giving me permission to become whatever God wants me to be. He's saying, don't labor in my shadow. Don't hold on to my coattails. Go, go. In fact, let's go. Amen. Everybody still okay? <clears throat> so we want our ceiling to be the floor of the next generation um i gotta wade into something here so my generation needs to do a better job of making room for the next generation the generation that raised me, there was this feeling that we came up through the ranks and it was tough and our elders were tough on us. We need to be tough. And I know that in the culture today, students are fragile. I have a lot of educators. I have two doctors of education in our church. I, I know what's going on in education. And my daughter, Michaela, until she came here to St. Louis a couple months ago. She was a teacher, and she told me the same thing, public school. Kids are fragile. And uh, I don't know how really to situate that, but suffice it to say that, you know, my dad's generation, there was this idea that, you know, bless God, we pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps, and that's what you're going to do too. And they were bound and determined to make sure that if life didn't knock you down, they might knock you down a couple times. 
In fact, when I went to meet the district board in 1978 with a bona fide degree from ABI, I was scared to death. Heard a lot of horror stories. Man, they're going to ask you, who was Melchizedek? What happened to the scapegoat? Which direction did the tabernacle face in the wilderness? In fact, my son Justin was asked that question. I'm like, hello? Why is that important? You're going to get your funnies out of asking a kid who's intelligent, handsome, sharp, anointed? You're going to waste his time asking him what direction did the tabernacle face? In the Old Testament? And I recently heard about a graduate from Urshan, four years, summa cum laude. He meets the district board, sharp, handsome, articulate. And they decided, it was a subcommittee, they decided, well, let's give him the silent treatment when he comes in. And so this kid walks in, shiny faced, excited, meeting his leaders, and they stare at him like Mount Rushmore. Is that what AT&T does when they hire their engineers? Is that what Fortune 500 companies do? I, I know I I'm, I'm probably don't have anybody in here that needs to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway because maybe this, this recording will have a shelf life. But it's not the young man or young lady's lucky day when they get to come and meet the district board. It's the district board's lucky day that the brightest and the best want to come alongside and be the next generation of apostolic leaders. And I've heard that for the last time. If I have anything to say about it. In fact, when I heard about that young man, I called his district superintendent. And he was not happy. He said, I'm taking care of that. I said, good. Because when I was superintendent in Missouri, I gave our board a lecture. I said, those days of intimidating, we want them to respect the board. We want them to be in awe of spiritual authority. That's a healthy thing. That's a godly thing. But we don't want them to be terrified. So when the new workers come into AT&T, do they hand him a plunger? Say, oh, you want to be an engineer? Go plunge the toilets. Man, I went off on this thing. I don't get it. I want to empower and celebrate and do my job. Because everybody's an intern. So, enough of that. I'm bringing my comments to a close. I'm a baby boomer. And baby boomers seem to be in denial of their mortality. Author Earl Kreps in his book, Off-Road Discipline, said the boomers have hair, hair implants, 
vitamin elixirs, Botox injections, exercise machines. Their logic is if the Rolling Stones can still tour, maybe there's still help for us to just keep playing. I mean, come on. How, many, how much more do we need to hear the Rolling Stones? Didn't they start in the 50s? He said that baby boomers lead 60% of America's churches. That's my generation. In a sobering reference, he quoted Bill Eason, who said in another 50 years, Christianity will have about the same influence in the U.S. as it does in Canada or Europe. His rationale is because baby boomers are not handing off to the next generation. Krebs followed with this, and I quote, walking the streets of Northern Europe, passing one darkened house of worship after another, touring cities in which the odds of meeting a Christ follower hover around one in a hundred. I find Eason's prediction taking on a frightening reality. Brothers and sisters, there's a time to be elected as a pastor. There's time to resign and hand it off. Brother Linder and I were talking before tonight, and I made the comment, the best preaching is where you're living. And this is where I'm living right now. My son, Justin, has been elected as my successor. The clock is ticking. And I'm not a... Uh, I'm living what I'm preaching to you tonight, what I'm sharing with you. There's a time to train. There's a time to teach. There's a time to model, a time to empower, a time to step up and lead. And there's a time to look at the next generation and say... The things that I've done, that you've watched me do, that I've trained you to do, it's time for you to start having your own miracles. It's time for you to lead. It's time for you to break my records. It's time for you to take my trophies out of the trophy case and put your trophies in there. Kreps said, passing the baton begins in the heart with loving the handing off more than the holding on. And he concluded his argument for believing and loving and trusting the next generation with the sobering wake-up call when he said, why? Because no one else is coming. I brought a picture. Uh, I want to show it to you. And forgive uh, the self-reference, but I told you this is where I'm living. This was... Uh, at Passing the Mantle just a few days ago at our church. It was Sunday morning, and Justin asked me to preach the, um, the keynote. Brother um, Caleb Herring preached the main message, but I, uh, I, you can't see it, but I have two gold batons in my, each of my, I have one in each hand, and I didn't know who else to use. I just brought my sons, Justin and Caleb. But I, I'm passionate about this. It doesn't matter to me how old you are. It doesn't matter to me how much gray hair you've got in your, in your head. When that moment came right there, something happened. And, and, and Elijah said to Elisha, if you see me when I go... That doesn't just mean when I'm caught up in a chariot fire. Included in the range of meaning, that phrase is, when you see eye to eye with me. 
Elisha, when you stop acting like a farmer that can drive 12 yoke of oxen and you start acting like a prophet, Israel doesn't need a farmer. They need a prophet. They need a man of God. When you catch me, when you get me, when you feel me, when you see me, when you understand this, that moment, let me tell you something. The mantle transferred before it ever fell as the chariot was carried up into heaven and took Elijah. It happened somewhere in that journey when he wouldn't let him out of his sight. And so I want you to stand with me, and we're just going to close in a prayer. Um, I know that we didn't really come to have, I suppose we didn't to have a church service, and we're going to probably take a break, and Brother Gurley's going to come.